Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Isaiah chapter 9, starting to read at verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The second reading can be found on page 968. It's taken from Matthew chapter 4 beginning to read at verse 12. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we stand, let's pray together. We thank you, Lord and God, for these things we've been singing of, sins forgiven, a conscience cleansed, death defeated, and the great confidence of the future hope of life without end. And we thank you all that comes through the wonderful counsel of the mighty God, the one who is uh, the everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And we pray you'd help us to uh, be amazed at him afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. Well, let me encourage you, uh, if uh, you will, to turn back in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, page uh, 693, as we continue to look through Isaiah uh, on these Sunday mornings. Isaiah chapter 9, page 693, and something else I think you'll find helpful will be to dig out um, this um, handout that was tucked inside 
uh, your service order just so you can see where we're going for the next uh, 25 minutes. Uh, The uh, dramatic pictures this week of Hurricane Sandy ripping through the eastern seaboard of the United States have been terrifying. Uh, The raw power of the storm is uh, humbling. When a force of that magnitude hits, there is nothing we can do. And so we saw millions of people helpless as the storm ripped through homes, uh, leaving behind it a trail of destruction and death and plunging millions into darkness. The sheer terror that was experienced this week would have been felt by the nation of Judah in Isaiah's day. Do you remember where we left them last week? Facing uh, not a hurricane, but a tsunami of sorts. They were already under siege, as we discovered at the beginning of chapter 7. The northern uh, alliance of the Syria-Israel armies had marched upon Jerusalem. But then last week in chapter 8, through the prophet Isaiah, the the Lord announced something even worse. He told Judah that an overwhelming power would sweep through the nation The Assyrians, the world superpower of the day, would come upon them in all their military might, like uh, floodwaters we saw in chapter 8, verse 7. It would have been uh, terrifying to have uh, received uh, this news, as frightening as it was to know that the franking storm called Sandy was on its way. And for the people of Judah, all this was happening because they were under the judgment of God. They had rejected God's word. They'd ignored what the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet. They'd refused to put their trust in the Lord. They'd refused to fear the Lord and had turned instead to the world to try and save them. And that resulted in darkness, death and judgment. Judah faced a bleak situation. In the judgment of God, they faced faced a fate worse than death. But with the Lord, no matter how grim it seems, even facing death and judgment, it is never the end of the story. And that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 9. Look, you know there's hope in this chapter just by reading the first word. Chapter 9, verse 1, nevertheless. See, at the end of chapter 8, the last verse tells us that as the people of Judah looked into the future, they saw only distress, fear, gloom and utter darkness. Nevertheless, says Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Here in the first seven verses of chapter 9, the Lord promises a day of wonderful deliverance, a rescue from a situation where Judah was completely helpless, as helpless as anyone in the path of a mighty hurricane. A rescue from being under God's judgment. And that then, what we're going to read here, is a message that everyone needs to hear, not just Judah. Uh, For the Bible tells us everyone has rejected God and left to ourselves, all of us face death and judgment and utter darkness for eternity. Uh, One word of explanation before we really leap into these verses. Uh, In verses 2 to 7, Isaiah speaks using what we might call the prophetic past tense. Isaiah speaks of things that will happen in the future as if they've already happened. I see it there in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. But as Isaiah writes, no one has seen this great light yet. And yet Isaiah can write as if the light has already come and already been seen because when God promises something, it's as good as done. Because when God speaks, it will happen. The prophetic past tense. Isaiah is speaking about future events 
but he speaks to them as if they've already happened. Now, remembering that will save us a lot of confusion as we study these verses. And with that word of explanation in our minds, look again at this wonderful verse verse. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Once again, as we've seen over the last few weeks, the importance of understanding names and places in the Bible. Zebulun and Naphtali here were north of the Sea of Galilee and would have been the first areas to have fallen at the hands of the Syria-Israel alliance and would be the first to fall as the Assyrians came marching down through the land. Zebulun and Naphtali then felt the full force of the world's attack on Judah and they would have been the first to have been hit by the devastation of God's judgment that was to come. But now, here in verse 1, the Lord promises the first lands to be humbled would be the first to see a wonderful light, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now that's the first promise in these verses. And if you're with me on the handout, we come to the first point, the promise of light, verse 2. Remember the historical situation that Judah was in. They had turned from God's word. We saw that at the end of chapter 8. Judah had ignored the prophet Isaiah and turned instead, chapter 8 verse 19, to consult mediums and spiritists. And the result of turning from God's word is, end of verse 20, to have no light of dawn. As they turn from God's word, we see in verse 21 uh, that they turn from God himself And then right at the end of chapter 8, we see that to turn from the word of God and to turn from God himself is, do you see it there at the end of verse 22, to be in the dark, to be thrust into utter darkness, a picture of judgment. And that's how it is for any nation or any individual that turns from the word of God. It is to be in the dark. Now this time last year, we had our, our one big question initiative. Do you remember it? And we went out and asked our friends that one big question. If you could ask God one question and you knew it would be answered, what would it be? You might remember the top question that came back was all about suffering. But the second most asked question was, what's the meaning of life? Interestingly for me, that was the question that most of my friends asked. What's the meaning of life? And as I reflect on it, I think, is it any wonder? Like me, my friends are in midlife. In many respects, the best years of life have gone. They've, all, they've worked all their lives for something and now at 50 or whatever, they realise they're never going to get what they worked for or they've got it and they realise it wasn't all it cracked up to be. No wonder they're asking, what's the meaning of life? I think of the words of Jack Higgins, the author of more than 60 novels, including the bestseller, The Eagle Has Landed, a bestseller which sold over 50 million copies. He's a man who's made it. When he was asked on a a radio interview uh, what was the one important lesson he learned in life, he replied, I wish someone had told me that when you reach the top, there's nothing there. That's the desperate emptiness of turning from the word of God. We're left directionless, in the dark. That's how Judah was. And that's why God promises, chapter 9, verse 2, a great light for those walking in darkness, a light dawning. But there's more to this promise of light in verse 2. 
See, going through life in the dark is bad enough, but Judah faced a problem that was much bigger, much bigger than a lack of direction. Because they had turned from the Lord, because they'd rejected the word of the Lord, they were under the judgment of the Lord. The mighty military machine that was the Assyrians would come bearing down upon them and would bring carnage and destruction and death. So, verse 2, they were living in the land of the shadow of death. Death cast its shadow over them. It was that darkness, the darkness of death and the judgment of God that really hung over them. And although we're not in a war zone as they were, it is that same darkness of death that hangs over us all. We don't need to be in a military conflict to know the shadow of death hanging over us. I just look around at this church family just uh, in the last five weeks. um, uh, Just in the last few weeks, five people have faced the agony of the death of a parent. This weekend, another of our church family is facing the anniversary of the death of a spouse. Others here going through serious medical treatment to fight off life-threatening diseases. Death is all around us. And even when it's not right on our personal doorstep, it's not far away. We, we read about it in our newspapers and see it on the television news every day. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know it is going to get us one day. We live in the shadow, the dark, gloomy shadow of death. And so how wonderful to hear the promise of light, verse 2. A light in the darkness, a light to give us direction in life, and a light that does that by dealing with death and the judgment of God. That's the great promise here. The promise of light because death is defeated. Secondly, the promise of joy, verses 3 to 5. If you look at verse 3, it is a verse full of joy and rejoicing. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Verse full of rejoicing. And that joy comes because of the end of conflict and oppression and war. Now, the version of the Bible we have in front of us doesn't really pick this up, but both verse 4 and verse 5 begin with the word for or because. So the rejoicing in verse 3 is because of verses 4 and 5. And in verses 4 and 5, we see that conflict and oppression and war has ended. Again, remember the immediate context. Judah was under siege. At the time of writing, under siege from the Syria-Israel alliance. And as I've already said, in chapter 8 through Isaiah, the Lord had told Judah that an even greater military war war machine was going to crush them. The Assyrians were going to sweep over them and deport them. They would be in exile and under Assyrian oppression. Now, here in verses 3 to 5, all that is reversed. Verse 3 says the nation will be enlarged. See, when attacked, Judah had seen their nation reduced in size. First, as the Northern Alliance came and took huge swathes of the land, and then the promise of the Assyrian invasion meant that the nation would be gobbled up even further. So to enlarge the nation meant the return of the land from their oppressors. To enlarge the nation meant to be free from oppression. That's the point of verse 4. And in verse 5, we see the promise of the end of war. That is the end of war for all time. 
Now look, we'll look at uh, verses 4 and 5 in more detail next week. But for now, verse 4 promises the end of oppression. Verse 5 promises the end of war. Add to that, verse 2, a light that chases away the darkness, the shadow of the death, uh, of death. And that is why we have great joy in verse 3. Great joy. What a complete turnaround in these verses. A complete reversal of the distress and gloom and utter darkness at the end of chapter 8. That is the promise of no longer being under the judgment of God. The promise of light because death is defeated. Secondly, the promise of joy because enemies are defeated. And all this comes about because over the page on the handout, all this comes about because of thirdly, the promise of a son in verses 6 and 7. Again, uh, look at the beginning of verse 6 and you'll see the little word for. What has been promised in verses 2 to 5, the promise of light and joy, comes for or because, verse 6, a child is born. Now what a surprise that is to us. Now look, I, I know we read this every Christmas and most of us are very familiar with this verse. But imagine first, the first time you heard it, imagine these hearers hearing it. What a surprise. In verses 2 to 5, through the prophet Isaiah, God has just promised the people of Judah the thing they need more than anything. The thing we all need more than anything. Death defeated, war and oppression ended, God's judgment averted. Verses 2 to 5 are all our Christmases come at once. Our deepest need satisfied. No more death. And life forevermore, a life of peace and joy forevermore. And then we're told all that will come about. And how will it come about, verse 6? Through a little baby. Through a child being born. It is a surprise. Of course, we know who this is talking about. But do you see the surprise of the verse? Do you see how wonderful Christmas really is? Do you see how remarkable it is that one child could achieve all this? This is so like our God. He not only does what no one else in the universe can do, dealing with death and bringing peace, but he does what no one else in the universe can do in a way that no one else in the universe would ever think of doing it. He sends a child, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. This, of course, is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because the New Testament tells us that this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, keep something in Isaiah 9 and just turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, page 968, the, the second of the two readings uh, that we had a little bit earlier from Anne. Page 968. And have a look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. He did this to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. 
The way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Here is Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. Quite deliberately, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order to show that he was the one that Isaiah 9 pointed towards. And when you remember that in chapter 1 of Matthew, we've already been told that he is the child that was born, and that when he was born, they gave him the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and we'll give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When you see all that, you begin to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole of the book of Isaiah. Remember too how, just as an aside, but we'll come back to it in a moment, how in Matthew chapter 1, it begins telling us that Jesus is the son of David. We'll see how important that is in a moment. But for now, see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, that Jesus is the great light who's come to deal with what? Death and judgment. That's the context, isn't it, Uh, of Isaiah chapter 9. And so Jesus is the one who not only brings, he not only is the light, but he is the one who brings unparalleled joy, the unparalleled joy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3. You won't find joy like the joy you'll find in Jesus anywhere else. And Jesus is the one who will eventually bring the end of war and oppression when he returns in glory and ushers in a new age, when in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no more death and a life of peace forevermore in the presence of the living God. That is Jesus' mission, to take a people, a sinful people, and turn them around to take them into the glorious new creation in the presence of God where there will be no more death and judgment. And before we return to Isaiah chapter 9, note how all this will come about. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The shadow of death is defeated and peace and joy comes when people hear the good news of Jesus, when that is preached to them and they repent. Jesus then is the answer to the great need that everyone has. Jesus is the answer to the problem of the shadow of death that hangs over us and ruins life. Jesus is the answer to the problem of a world at war. Jesus is the king that we need. And that is the big point of Isaiah chapter 9 as we begin to draw to a close. Isaiah chapter 9, page 693 again. You see, verses 6 and 7... These great verses in Isaiah 9 that we know so well are all about Jesus' rule. Look at verse 6. The government will be on his shoulders. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And verse 7. He will reign on David's throne. That's what we saw in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is the son of David. And that is significant because back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13... King David was promised that his son would have an everlasting kingdom. And that's what these promises, uh, that's what these verses promise. Uh, Twice we read it in verse 7. No end to his government and a kingdom that will last forever. And all that is possible because of who King Jesus is. He is, verse 6, 
wonderful counsellor. Do you remember last week how we saw in chapter 8 verse 19 that the people of Judah had turned from God's law and looked to mediums and spiritists for direction? And you might recall how in the first five chapters of Isaiah, the leaders of Judah, in turning from God's law, had given such foolish advice to the nation. By contrast, this promised son will give wondrous counsel, counsel that is unfailing in depth of wisdom. That's why he is such a magnificent ruler. So we must ask ourselves, is he our counsellor? Where do we go for wisdom? Mediums and spiritists, horoscopes, the wisdom of the world? Or do we go to his word? Do we soak ourselves daily in his word? That's where we'll see and hear and receive his wonderful counsel. He is the wonderful counsel and that's why his kingdom is so good. And he is, verse 6, mighty God. Here's why he can and will rule forever. He is almighty, mighty over all the world, over the whole universe. And we'll see in chapter 10 in a couple of weeks that he is more mighty, more powerful than the most mighty and most powerful nations of the world. But you see, that's why he can rule. That's why there will be no end to the increase of his government. No one can overthrow him. He is mighty God. Christian, Take comfort that Jesus, your Lord, is the mighty God of the universe. And be sure to turn to him for security. Don't look anywhere else. That's been the big thrust, hasn't it, of Isaiah's chapter 6 to 9. Don't look to anyone else. Look to him for your security. He is wonderful counsellor, mighty God. And verse 6, he is everlasting father. Now don't confuse the persons of the Trinity here. This is talking about Jesus, not God the Father. So in what ways is Jesus everlasting Father? Well, I'm told that at the time that Isaiah wrote, apparently many kings claimed to be father to their subjects. And so in that sense, Jesus is our Father. He is the one who provides for us. He is the source of all things, the beginning of new things. So again, Christian, be encouraged. Jesus gives you everything you need. That's why being in his kingdom is so wonderful. You don't need anything with him as king. So again, it begs the question, are we looking to him for everything? Or are we looking to other things to provide what we need? Finally, verse 6, he is the prince of peace. Here is the climactic title of these four titles. For a nation in the middle of a war zone, what a thing to hear. He is the one who comes and establishes peace. But I want to suggest this peace is so much more than the absence of war. This is the peace that Judah and all people need. Remember, they are under the judgment of God. Because of their sinful rebellion against God, they face the wrath of God. They needed to be at peace with God. And that is how Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Later in Isaiah, we read these uh, very famous words. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. Tilking of, of Jesus, the suffering servant. Do you remember these words? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we're healed. 
His death brought us peace with God. How remarkable that this mighty God would die for us, those who rejected him, and that he would die to bring us peace with himself. Here then is why we need this child as our ruler. For he alone can deal with the greatest problem we have, the problem of being under the wrath of God. Picture again the images of the devastation of Hurricane Sandy this week. And then consider that everyone faces a more powerful force coming upon them in judgment. For everyone has rebelled against God, the almighty creator of the universe. To face his wrath is to face a fate worse than death. And it is to be cast into utter darkness forever. And that is why this is such a relief. Here we see it doesn't need to be like that. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and that child, the Prince of Peace, has made it possible to be at peace with God and to come under the rule of Christ in a death-free, joyful relationship with God forever. There'll be some here this morning who've never put themselves under his rule. And so you're not at peace with God. And you don't have this future to look forward to. Well, let me ask you, why not? Why not start with Jesus today? Just look at how much God wants this for you and for the world. Look right at the end of verse 7, over the page. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See what that is saying? God is passionate to bring about this rescue He has gone to such great lengths to bring you to himself. Indeed, that's exactly what we'll be remembering as we take bread and wine in just a moment. He has a zealous commitment to bring about this transformation, this hope to a world in darkness. That is what he, our God, is about. What a God. What a king we have in Jesus. Rejoice in him today. Rejoice in in the anticipation of what he promises here. And if you know him as your ruler, proclaim him to a world that is lost. A world that has turned from God's word and is directionless and in the dark. A world which is under the shadow of death and the judgment of God. Proclaim Jesus, the wonderful counsellor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace.